Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we'll find out what happened to Jan Smuts and his commando as they combined forces with Commandant van Deventer, who himself is in the middle of a major skirmish with the British near Calvinia in the Northern Cape. The war is spluttering, the Boers are faltering, the British are escalating. All in all, it's a bit like the end of the line for Jan Smuts and his men. But they're not beaten yet. Many believe that they can give the British at least one more bloody nose, then perhaps sue for peace and keep their independence. This was hopelessly naive, as the British wanted the Boer republics in their ambit, partly because of world diplomacy and nationalism, and partly because of the enormous mineral resources of the Transvaal and Free State. These had been developed into mines, and these mines were owned by English financiers. There was no way that such treasure would be allowed to fall into German hands, and the Germans were very busy both in the Eastern African region and in nearby German Southwest Africa. While local issues were driving the short-term responses by London, its eyes were very much on its own local European enemies. While the ramifications of this pre-World War I diplomacy is beyond the scope of this podcast, we must keep in mind what was going on throughout the globe at the same time. The tension between Germany and Great Britain was palpable. America was trying to suppress uprisings in Cuba. In China, the Boxer Rebellion, which was a form of millenarian movement gone wrong, had caused the English a great deal of distress. From that vast lens, we contract to a small kopi near Calvinia in South Africa's northern Cape region of the Great Karoo, where Jan Smuts and his commando, which included our narrator Denise Reitz, had sought shelter alongside Van Deventer's men. Last week we heard how Jan Smuts had arrived in the middle of a firefight against the British. It had turned into something more like a mini-battle. About 120 wagons below them, close to a small dry riverbed, were on fire, with the roar of explosions and the popping of rounds of ammunition echoing across the ridges. And almost as apparitions, standing amongst the dead animals and human corpses, were dozens of horses munching on the grass. They seemed completely unperturbed by the exploding ordnance. Opposite the Boers and behind the exploding wagons, over 200 British troops were in excellent defensive positions. Both sides found themselves caught in a fight and neither would give an inch. Denis Reitz was one of the Boers lying on the ridge, staring across at the British lines. The bulk of the English soldiers had taken post at a farmhouse surrounded by a walled garden about 900 yards away, from which they were maintaining a hot rifle fire. The English were going to be difficult to dislodge. The Boers, though, needed the horses and what was left in the wagons. The English were in no mood to withdraw. Worse for Smuts and Van Deventer, there were more soldiers on the brow of a hill about 400 yards away to the left, and behind these men... The British artillery had installed their field gun on a rise. A direct attack on any of these positions was suicide. To the right of the farmhouse from the Boers' position, there was an isolated detachment of British troops. They were closer, and it was their firing that was keeping Van Deventer from rushing in amongst the burning wagons to retrieve what items of value they could. Smuts also realised the isolated detachment was made up of perhaps a dozen British at most. Yet, both units on the left and right of the farmhouse could shoot down any Boers in a wicked crossfire should they make the mistake of charging the walled garden. Van Deventer told General Smuts 
that he was anxious to recover the animals feeding amongst the wagons, to which end he had a few minutes previously sent Field Cornet van der Berg with twenty-five men to clear the kopje overlooking the camp. The plan was for the twenty-five to head towards the rear of the rise and then rush the British from the back. He had ordered them to ride behind some other kopjes that screened their view. Reitz, though, was in a mood to secure for himself a few of these precious horses. His behind was suffering. I had now ridden my mule for upwards of a thousand miles. He was a willing animal, but with his shambling gait and long stride, a mule at best makes a tiring mount, and I yearned for the easier seat of a horse. His yearning would be answered. Another member of Smuts's commander was also coveting the horses. Martin Brink had been riding a mule for months as well and was equally anxious for a change, so both decided to join the attacking party. They ran back down the kopje, mounted their ungainly mules and followed the tracks made by Van der Berg's men. After a breathless gallop, we raced round the corner of a ridge into the open. We found that he had taken the soldiers by surprise and that he and his men had reached the foot and were climbing up under a ragged rifle fire. It was the Boers attacking the British on the summit of a kopje, a reversal of the usual conditions. By the time Reitz and Brink arrived at the summit, the firefight was over, but it once again cost both sides many men. It had been an expensive little fight. Alloyne Weber, an ex-Transvaal artillery officer, and two more men lay dead, and Wilkornet van der Berg and another were badly wounded. At least three of the British soldiers had been killed. Four were wounded out of the dozen who had been holding the post. Now the copy was in Boer hands, and the commando could make its way down to the sprite nearby. On the opposite bank, the wagons stood, still burning. Leaving their friends to attend to the wounded, the rest of us lost no time in descending the slope and jumping into the sprite. They ran along the sandy bottom, shielded by its sides, and then peered over at where the wagons sat, smoke rising into the morning sky. Then we climbed out and rushed for the horses that were nosing the fodder-strewn ground. When the troops from the distant farmhouse saw us running amongst the wagons, they opened fire, but we were not to be denied. It took Rates three different sprints into enemy fire to secure three horses, with saddles, holsters and brides complete. The other men were just as busy, and luckily no one was hit. They were so desperate for proper mounts, they were willing to chance a bullet in order to find a horse. Rates secured his horses, then decided to have another go at finding loot amongst the wagons. Because the British were 900 yards away, though, the distant firing meant that they would have to be either extraordinarily good or lucky to hit a moving boar. In dodging among the smouldering wagons, I came on a fully laden Scotch cart that had been overlooked in the dark. It was quite intact, and as the firing from the farmhouse was increasing, I seized a large portmanteau and shoveled into it all that I could find in the way of books, papers, boots and clothing, including some Bank of England notes. Then he dragged his booty back over the ground and to the safety of the sprite's sandy bed. There he looked over the documents and realised with a cold shock that they belonged to Colonel Doran, who had commanded the convoy. Amongst Doran's papers 
were the records of the court-martial of Commandant Skippers. Colonel Doran had presided over the court-martial, which led, as we know, to Skippers being found guilty of treason because he was a Cape citizen. He was then executed by a firing squad. After a hurried inspection of my new property, I distributed my haul evenly on my three horses and my mule, and rode back to General Smuts, very pleased with the morning's work, for, no longer a ragged muleteer, I was now better horsed, shod and equipped than at any time of the war. The English had also broken away, sending their field gun ahead in case it fell into the Boers' hands. But they left the rest of their horses and mules for the Boers, along with the loot that had not been burnt in the large convoy. General Smuts decided it was best not to pursue the retreating British, preferring to continue looting the wagons as they had been struggling to find munitions and parts for their firearms. We were now free to revisit the camp unmolested, and, in addition to hundreds of animals, the men recovered a considerable quantity of ammunition, saddlery, etc., and the most valuable of all, many cases of horseshoes and nails. Six soldiers lay dead in the camp, alongside thirty wounded, who were being tended to by a doctor. They rode back to the farmhouse, and on the way, Rates had some unfortunate business to attend to. At the request of the medical officer, I rode around to shoot the wounded horses and mules. It was best to put them out of their misery. Then he turned to his own horses to inspect them properly, and was immediately struck by one. A beautiful little dark grey Arab mare with a coat like velvet and nimble as a goat. I was mounted on her when I rode to the farmhouse, and here, her former owner, a wounded officer named Chapman, lying on a stretcher outside, recognized her and offered to buy her back from me for sixty-five pounds. He said her name was Ginny and that she was the best horse in the country. Rates was bemused. What was he to do with sixty-five pounds? The money was useless. The horse was worth far more to him than a handful of Bank of England notes. I knew a good horse when I saw one. I refused to sell, but promised to look after her and treat her well. Strange, this conversation. The two, fighting a war against each other, still had time to horse trade. Such are the stories from the felt where surprises lurk. The Boers spent the night at the farmhouse, along with the British wounded. We buried our dead at sunrise the next day. The bodies had been placed ready on a wagon, and not knowing this, I spent the night under it. When he awoke, he was covered in gore that had oozed through the planks of the wagons above. It shook him, after all he'd been through. Now he was showered in the blood of his friends. It was symbolic, perhaps. At the funeral, General Smuts made a moving speech. He pointed out that among the dead were a Transvaaler, a free stater, and a colonial, all parts of South Africa being thus represented in the common sacrifice for liberty. This is a fascinating moment in Smuts's personal development. At this firefight, far from the lights of London or indeed Cape Town, his political instincts were forming about how South Africa should be governed and by whom. The speech was a harbinger of the future of the Union of South Africa, where the general would become a politician. It was even the harbinger of the formation of the League of Nations after the First World War, with its 
inclusivity, but only for those who earned their place. The colonial he referred to was English-speaking, but had fought for the Boers. Now he had died in a firefight. It was all about liberty in Smuts's eyes, and this became the rallying cry later as the South African party sought to become inclusive, but only of white South Africans. In his eyes, it was going to be hard enough motivating whites to work together while black South Africa was alien, an entirely different kettle of fish. Yet against the background of this rugged Northern Cape semi-desert, imagine if you can this group of men, their bare heads bowed, listening to the general speak of liberty and who would one day become world famous. Smuts was already thinking far ahead, using his holism philosophy he dreamed up at Cambridge as a cornerstone of his vision. But to Denise Reitz and the others, his speech was moving, a tribute to their friends who lost their lives, but not in vain. For Reitz, it wasn't the last colonial, though, he'd see dead that day. After the ceremony was over, General Smuts ordered him to ride 20 miles away to a farm where the Boer wounded had been sent. I found most of the men fairly comfortable, although there were several bad cases. One was a colonial who'd been shot through the stomach and the woman of the house asked me to have a look at him as his side was inflamed. Rates entered the farmhouse and found the man in pain. While she and I were examining the wound, he gave a deep groan and died without speaking. His internal injuries had caused severe bleeding. There was nothing that could have been done for this colonial. There was no time for speeches. Rates and a wagon driver dug the hole, the white boer and the black worker side by side, digging a grave for the English colonial. Rates was not one for tributes. We dug a hole beside the threshing floor, and as we knew no funeral service, we simply carried him by the shoulders and knees, laid him in the grave, covered him with earth, and left him. Rates had been digging men's graves for almost three years, and he was still not yet twenty-one. He didn't have time to ponder about this, for as he finished, a group of horsemen rode up to the farmhouse, around fifty strong. At first, he thought he'd been trapped by the English, but then realized they were Boers. They proved to be survivors of a portion of the commando that General Smuts had left behind on his way through the Free State the year before. Field Cornet Dreyer was in charge, and he'd been told to follow on after they'd rested in the Free State. It took him five months, but follow on he did, and here he was. They started south on our tracks, and after many trials and dangers, this remnant had come through. There was one man amongst the group that Rates was initially not too happy to see. It was Reverend Creel. With whom my brothers and I had quarreled at warm baths in December 1901. The trails of war crisscrossed the country. In spite of his religious bigotry, he was a stout-hearted old man whom I learned to respect, Rates admits. Later that evening, General Smuts arrived with the full commander, as well as Van Deventer. It was the first time since November 1901 that they were all together, and there was great rejoicing and handshaking. Smuts, however, was trying to make contact with another of his leaders called Commandant Bouvet, who was down in the plains near the Ulifants River, near Van der Reinstorp. It was time for Reitz to head west once more towards the Atlantic Ocean, now the main messenger for General Smuts, as he seemed to have an uncanny knack of finding distant Boer commandos. 
It took him three days of riding through the high plains, then the mountain passes, and finally he located Bouvier near Van Rensdorp, camped along the Trutro River. This is close to the western coast of South Africa, where the icy cold Atlantic flows past bringing dense fogs. The town is on the edge of the Namakaru region and has ancient sand or Bushman paintings, some of the oldest in Africa. Reitz was too busy to take much notice of its history. You see, Commandant Bevere had suffered a major setback on the previous day, and it was all because of a colonial called Lemuel Colain. This one moment in the Boer War would later sully General Smuts's name as he sought to reunify South Africa, this English speaker who told the Boers he would fight for their liberty. You see, a week before Reitz appeared at the Namakaru town of Van Rensdorp, Lemuel Kalein had appeared amongst Commandant Bevere's commando. With a tale that the English had put him in prison in Clan William on a false charge of high treason, he said he had escaped over the wall one night and had come in revenge to take up arms. The Boers believed his story. After all, it wasn't the first time they'd heard such things, so they gave Colain a rifle and he joined the commander. Lemuel Colain, however, was a spy, being paid by the British to collect intelligence. And that's precisely what he did, spending the days listening to reports, watching the commander's operations, taking note of their plans. Then one night he disappeared. At first, no one took notice of his absence. Remember, the Boer soldiers were forever coming and going to sort out issues at home if they were in commando close by, or looking up friends, riding to nearby farms and distant outposts. It was one of the things that had made General de Vett so unhappy earlier in the war, when he could never be certain of just how many men he could call on when planning an attack. The Boers, though, realised their mistake when it was too late. For the day before, in mid-February 1902, a large unit of English cavalry, with Lemuel Colain at their head, fell upon Bouvier's men at dawn, killing and wounding seventeen. Including my young friend Michael Dupree, writes mutters. The attacking force took our men so completely by surprise that the troopers rode through the camp using their swords and got away safely on the other side before our men could recover their wits. They had been hacked and slashed to death at dawn. But Cologne had made a big mistake. It was one thing to fight a war man to man, but another to ingratiate yourself amongst your enemy as a spy, then involve yourself directly in the follow-up attack. That was personal. All were fierce in their denunciation of Cologne's treachery and hoped that he would fall into their hands. And later, as Raids points out, Nemesis ran the right man to earth for once. As we'll hear next week, Nemesis would also create a big political problem for Jan Smuts, as he and Kalein were fated, or perhaps cursed, to be inextricably linked to one another until Smuts's own death decades later. But right now, we'll brush down the horses, throw some feed on the rocky Karoo ground, light a fire, and settle down for the evening. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination and send me a note through the website abwarpodcast.com. You can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs>
En zonder gedaan langs die moeierdienste waal het Bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare.